0: Hello and welcome to the Bridgeway Security Hour brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm your host Kira Sanderson. Let me introduce our panel for today. We have Adam Dietrich, Jamie Smith, and Lee Margolet. Thank you all for being here today.
1: It's great to be here, Kira. Yeah, happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I look forward to our discussion, so we will now begin. In news that is not dominated by the impeachment inquiry, we will begin with our first topic, which is what extent can climate change be viewed as a national security issue? I would love to open this topic up for discussion and hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll start, Kira. So I guess climate change isn't really necessarily uh, considered a traditional security threat, but I think what we've seen in the past, I would say, a few decades now is that these climate-related events have been costing the U.S. and its allies throughout the world great costs, and that not necessarily it's a, we think of it as a direct threat to national security, but it's often the byproducts, uh, such as the strain on resources, the impact to the economy, uh, the displacement of many people.
2: Right, and so I've actually looked at it in the same context as like more forward looking with the national security threat, looking at it with the competition of resources, and also looking at it with the likelihood of more natural disasters. And as they kind of increase in severity, as like climate change has become more of an issue, we've kind of seen in the Gulf and in Puerto Rico with some of the hurricanes, also limits the response time for authorities because when they're so involved with trying to um, alleviate anything that's coming from a natural disaster, that also kind of opens it up for organized crime and things like that. So there are also like like many different things that come from climate change as repercussions that aren't typically looked at outside of the actual like natural disaster, natural aspect of climate change.
3: Yeah, and I would completely agree with everything that the rest of the panel have said. The way I view it when politicians talk about climate change as national security, though, is a way to leverage domestic policy goals and a domestic policy orientation to a foreign policy credential when most of what the United States can do, we have to set the standard first by reforms at home before we can leverage that abroad.
1: I completely agree with you, Adam. Uh, and the interesting thing about like this particular problem is that, yeah, the U.S. might uh, be well-situated to lead, but obviously I think the politics at the time of uh, recording this podcast don't really match up to maybe what is needed. And also the unique thing about... Uh, looking at climate change as a national security issue is that it is truly a multilateral effort, is that the U.S. or other powers across the world cannot burden of fighting climate change, especially in the national security context, on their own backs. It really takes sort of like a team effort amongst the international community.
2: Right. And so climate change is like, it's looked at as like a a threat multiplier. So like what Lee was saying is like, when you're looking at policy, you really have to kind of look at anything that's like reduction, like reducing the effects of a natural disaster or anything that could come with climate change, but also the preparedness. And I think that's kind of where the challenge comes with a lot of policymakers is how do you prepare? How do you kind of predict what's gonna happen in the future because I mean, as long as you can you can kind of predict and we've seen trends over the past years and you can use data that we've started to collect, um, it's so really hard to kind of prepare because you you're not really sure what's gonna happen. You can do your best. So I think policymakers are kind of stuck where they're at right now because I know that again, they're really worried about climate change from the global perspective of what it's doing like to the environment, not necessarily looking at it as a national security threat. So I think that the focus needs to shift a little bit more towards kind of preparing countries. If we are going to see these effects on the climate going forward, that you need to start preparing not just for what's going to do the environment, what it's going to do to a country or to a a city or what those kind of effects are going to look like.
3: I completely agree. As climate change starts having an effect on like human life and like human populations, it demands much more urgency and Once you start thinking of climate change as national security, it kind of brings in other norms uh, within the international community. Like you could look at the fires in the Amazon rainforest and Bolsonaro's ineffectiveness or unwillingness to respond. If we treated climate change as national security, would the responsibility to protect be invoked? Could other countries come in to fight the fires without Brazil's national will with them? Uh, it, It brings in a lot of questions. That we really haven't addressed yet
1: no also uh, especially within the security space is that the melting of arctic sea ice i think they estimate by 2050 i believe maybe sooner uh given the current projections is that the arctic will be free of ice for three months out of the year which yeah. is has never happened in human history so i guess what this could do is that obviously you have like Russia, the United States, uh, countries like Norway, and Canada all, I guess we could classify as Arctic sea powers, and that the melting of the ice up there is uh, going to present, is going to provide us with new opportunities for various sea lanes to be accessed, thus making another uh, security situation for the international community.
2: I totally agree with Lee. So I actually, for Professor Grower's class, um, so my last policy memo, I actually wrote on this exact thing. I wrote on Arctic policy and what it would look like going forward. So Lee's completely right. So, and that opens up a whole new world of problems when you're looking at all those different countries that have access to the Arctic when the ice melts during the year. So now if you're, it's usually closed off with ice. So now you're looking at how do you kind of create waterways or create boundaries for countries who owns what, because it's never really had that problem because it's always been covered with ice. So you're now adding a whole nother layer of like, there's like a good like five, six, seven countries that kind of lay claim to that area up there. So Russia and the United States kind of really having the majority of it, but there are other countries that kind of touch the Arctic that would want a piece of the natural resources when they're open. And when the ice isn't there um, and just the land space and the waterways for either trade or for military use or for whatever that they want to use it for.
3: Let's not forget that China has declared itself a near Arctic power and has got observer status on the Arctic Council. It clearly is making a play for when these sea lanes open to have rights for trade passages and uh, possible resources within that area.
0: All right. So I do have a different question now that we've kind of viewed it within the context of national security. Do we have any thoughts regarding the 2020 presidential election and how certain candidates will take a stance on this?
1: Well, it's I think it's evident that they don't lack imagination. I agree. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, but from, I guess, at a broad level, a survey is that you have, what I would say is not really any candidate is really considering climate change as a clear national security issue and still thinking of it as maybe like a very domestic, uh, very narrow environmental policy sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that they're still looking at it in the more traditional view of it being an environmental-based policy than a national security threat. Um, And maybe that's because we haven't really seen any effects of a national security threat of like resources or organized crime or anything like that that could really kind of flip that switch in their minds of saying, oh yeah, this is going to potentially impact a lot of people. I think that they're still looking at it as like trying to cut down on greenhouse emissions and things like that and working on like rising temperatures. But it goes so much beyond that because some of those are actually like beyond being fixed at this point. So you kind of have to look at how can we mitigate it now, but kind of looking forward that those effects are already going to be in place. So how do we kind of prepare for them like going forward in the future? So I still think that they're like more on the more like traditional thought, thought. route for it instead of a national security kind of focus.
3: I think that there's a little more nuance with the Democrats' positions. Uh, you have candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who who really make various versions of the Green New Deal a hallmark of their campaign. And while they are definitely tied to domestics, it's part of that idea of leading from the front and rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. But you also have like candidates like Andrew Yang, who really takes kind of a, a pessimistic like, look, we can't solve this just by... Changing standards. He's talking about carbon capture. He's talking about not can we stop sea level rise, but like moving populations, like, you know, adjusting how we live because climate change is inevitable. So there's a lot more going on in that conversation than should we put a price on carbon, which is where the conversation was five years ago.
0: Um, Any other thoughts on this topic? Or we will start into our second topic. So Mm -hmm. then we can go forward. Awesome. In September, there were attacks on Saudi Arabian oil facilities and the Trump administration claimed that it was likely that Iran was behind these attacks and they pointed to satellite photographs as well as intel assessments as evidence. So um, first just putting that out there, but then the follow-up question would be like, has this showed the limitations of the Houthis as an Iranian proxy?
3: I mean, we've already known that to be true. I mean, the result is that I think what's more interesting is that it shows that the Iranians don't entirely trust the Houthis to pull off an attack like this. Uh, They had to take it upon themselves as opposed to being able to outsource the action.
1: Yeah, especially from the early information that we have, or the information that's available at this point in time, is that it seems to be the kind of conventional or accepted wisdom that the Houthi rebels uh, within Yemen could not have pulled off such a sophisticated attack like this.
2: I don't really want to repeat other things that they've really said, but no, I totally agree with both Adam and Lee that it's, there isn't enough evidence currently. There's really not, they really don't have a whole lot of evidence on where it could have come from, how they do kind of understand like what was used. um, But it does kind of, bring into question the capabilities of the houthis and what they could actually pull off since they said that it's really unlikely especially because the missiles that they're assuming that were used that they've never been used by the houthis before and it kind of is outside their capabilities of what they currently could use
3: to be fair though that's not to say that the houthis should be completely discounted the the proxy war they've been fighting with the saudis in yemen has gone on for years and way longer than anyone thought they would take just because they didn't conduct this attack doesn't mean that they're a viable threat to to the saudis or in this larger conflict between iran and the saudis that uh, we've gotten ourselves positioned in for example uh there's plenty of evidence that shows connections between iranian intelligence officials and the houthis and u.s military technologies that we've sold to the saudis which then moves to the saudis proxies in yemen to get captured by the houthis and then gets that information uh gets transferred back to the iranians finding out more about U.S. military technologies. I think one thing that's really important to look at is the U.S. response. We, we responded with more sanctions, which might have been the appropriate thing, but it really shows the limitations of you know where the U.S. is willing to go in defending a Saudi oil facility, for example. Uh, There was probably a time where we thought that that would have been met with a stronger response or or with some sort of attack. I mean, not saying that I'm advocating for to go to a war with Iran right now, but it definitely pulls into question uh, how much some of this mutual defense goes these days.
2: Yeah, I kind of like when I was going through this and kind of one of the things I pointed out was um, I did a report on like the weaponization of oil and kind of how that's used to kind of build leverage between countries. And it just I agree with you, Adam, about just that really shows how much the United States relies on like Saudi relations and the oil that they have. And it kind of like made me think so if obviously Iran and the United States are within a little bit of attention, especially with the sanctions that their relationship isn't super great, especially in the past year, it's kind of um, deteriorated a little bit more. Um, I find it really interesting that they would go after somebody that the United States relies on so heavily, um, almost like trying to attack the United States. They attack the Saudis by attacking the United States, essentially trying to get at them kind of in a backdoor way if they really don't want to go after the United States itself. Um, So I kind of thought that was really interesting just with some of the stuff that I've looked at with like the oil and the relations and like honestly how much the United States, like what would happen to us if we, if that was cut off, if we couldn't get to any um, of our like Saudi oil partners going forward.
1: No, and the United States isn't just dependent on that area of the world being stable, but mostly like A lot of like East Asia is very dependent on the oil and natural gas that comes out of that region. And I think what we've seen with this attack is that even though this was what we could classify as like a limited strike by who knows who, by Iran likely at this point in time, uh, that has rippling effects throughout the world. I mean, we saw the impact on global oil prices and a lot of uh, markets around the world were affected uh, by this attack. So I definitely think that at this
3: point in time we should probably strive for to maybe like stabilize the region. Oh, stabilizing the Middle East. That's a genius idea, Lee. No one thought (laughs) about that. No, I think I mean I'll open this up to you guys a little bit, but I'm I'm thinking that this was more in a regional conflict than a global one. Like there's global ramifications. But I feel it can be specifically tied to posturing for, you know, moral authority within the, the Arab world than uh necessarily going after the United States' as oil reserves. Or they got lucky and got both.
0: So we're going to transition into our last topic, which has to deal with the threat of white nationalist terrorism and the shift of the response by the U.S. government institutions and jamie i know you've done a lot of work on this this past semester so any beginning thoughts on sure this? so this is very near and dear to my
2: <laughs> heart as a topic since um that was what we were tasked for is with the working groups this year to kind of look at domestic terrorism and white supremacy so it, kind of going forward going off of that um so homeland security did actually um, just announced that they do consider white supremacy and domestic terrorism um, as one of the primary security threats going forward facing the United States, and so that's actually a good thing. Um, that it's it's finally being considered the level th- of threat that it is. Um, so these ideologies that these people hold just they're not just because you hold a white supremacist or a racist or anti-Semitic or whatever view that you have. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a terrorist. Um, They're finally going to be kind of taking into those people, that smaller population of people that do kind of resort to violence with those ideologies um, and kind of manifest them into attacks. Since we've seen, I say that as a small population because unfortunately, white supremacy does take up a, there are large groups, but not everybody kind of gets radicalized in the sense that they want to commit type of violent crimes. Um, so, as we can see with like El Paso, that was a single shooter, um, even here in Pittsburgh. So, Robert Barris did that on his own. That was one person that kind of carried out that attack. So, a lot of these people kind of become those lone actor type terrorists. Um, and so, they're kind of putting this now at the level of addressing um, Islamic terrorists. So, white supremacist terrorists generally use the same tactics, that's the same type of radicalization ideas using the internet um, and type ideas that islamic terrorists do um however it just doesn't seem like it takes the precedence because obviously we've seen 9-11 and we've seen such a precedence put on like islamic type terrorists and al-qaeda and those type of radicalized ideologies when the ones that are kind of just in your own backyard to say are just as dangerous when somebody is trying when you're so hateful towards a group of people that is very dangerous and it can really harm a lot of people and sometimes there are a lot of cases where they kind of don't have a reason they just Hate a group of people and they want to hurt a lot of people and do a lot of damage. So hopefully, I get to come back and talk to you guys either at the end of this semester or the end of the year and go back over this because we'll be uh, hopefully giving you a lot more information um, once we do our project for the FBI this year too.
1: No, that's uh, <clears throat> that's some really cool work. Curious to know, like, given all the uh, literature out there in regards to like Islamic uh, extremists or who become terrorists, do we have maybe like sort of a profile? Right now, of what we consider maybe like the average uh, white nationalist might be or who is this Um, person?
2: That's a good point. So at least from what I've looked at is most of these people are between the ages. They're usually young adults, so they're usually in their 20s or 30s, um, and they've pretty much had these ideologies for a while or have had something kind of in their life that has sparked this type of hatred. And just for the example, I'll use the El Paso shooter. So he wrote his manifesto and posted it online so people could read it, and he was more of like great replacement theory which is an anti-immigration type mindset um and he said that his attack was in response to the influx of immigrants in texas um and so that was where he kind of came from um so you're looking at people that are kind of more on the like outskirts of society a little bit more outcast they're usually young they're usually educated so there's this idea that those people are very stupid or just because of their ideologies these are generally very educated people um and you kind of look at a lot of like the far right kind of ideologies. These are politically motivated motivations and attacks. And so they are here to make a point. So they do, and I'm obviously not condoning for it, but they do know what they're talking about. Like they do try to back up their thoughts and the rationale behind it and with policy and things like that. So their hate is rooted in, knowledge as obnoxious as most of their views can be um it's tough to build a true profile because you really don't know it's a lot easier to kind of there are some commonalities over um attacks we've seen even in like the early and late 90s that we kind of forget about a little bit like the oklahoma city bomber and things like that but they're generally young generally are educated generally are isolated so that is at least like the three kind of common things but we also kind of see that with homegrown brian extremists um, and people in the united states that kind of adopt islamic ideologies also
1: i feel like another thing about uh i guess particularly like domestic like white nationalists uh who might commit terror who might commit terror acts and how we might need to like shift our thinking is that like as u.s citizens the privilege and the rights that are afforded to us by the constitution and this is some, an idea that we often like need to wrap our heads around because at least our intelligence agencies that uh, collect intelligence on foreign threats to the United States, it's difficult because you have to go through a lot of procedural and legal means to collect information on American citizens
2: a hundred percent. And unfortunately, a lot of these groups are legal. Um, and so as long as they don't kill anybody or really severely injure anybody, um, protesting, um, and things like that is completely legal. Um, owning weapons is completely legal. Um, and so that is what kind of really makes it dangerous and what is really so hard about trying to prepare for different attacks or, cause you really don't know, you don't know what's going to make somebody snap. And, um, unfortunately, even in things like Charlottesville, like that, wasn't supposed to happen. Nobody was supposed to get hurt. It was just supposed to be a rally, and unfortunately, somebody did get killed. Um, so that's where the violence kind of escalates. A lot of these groups really aren't rooted in violence, but some of them are, and they do kind of um, take to drastic measures to get their, their point across.
3: But I think what we're seeing here is we're, we're seeing a double standard emerge between like two ideologies that are hateful that have these connections, but one gets incredibly scrutinized. Uh, Whereas the other gets this passed because, oh, you know, oh, it's domestic. Oh, it gets covered. Obviously, civil rights are not to be ignored here. But, you know, certain scrutiny to groups and monitoring, I think, is an important step. And the idea, it's not only domestic now. You're you're seeing, I mean, these groups have always existed in Europe as well. But uh, neo-Nazi groups in eastern Germany and in Poland. There have been connections with white nationalist groups here in the United States reaching out, sending their guys over there to get trained, and then coming back. You're really seeing this proliferation of a model that uh, Islam jihadism has really shown, both through online radicalization and almost kind of turning it into a global movement.
2: Yeah. No, I totally agree because especially because you saw in New Zealand the El Paso shooter in his manifesto, the very first line says he completely agrees with the Christchurch shooter. So it's not just something that's going to be contained just within the United States. We've seen things in Norway in the past. Like this isn't something new. Unfortunately, I think it really has just kind of and it's also not new to the United States. A lot of people will say that it's because of the current administration. The white supremacist idea predates the Trump administration. Um, there was a spike in attacks when Obama was elected. Um, there's a spike and whenever certain things kind of happen when there's rhetoric or news media that is kind of portraying these ideas you see these spikes in activity um but again it, that's not just to the united states that happens around the globe it happens in europe it happens in new zealand it happens wherever these ideologies aren't just something new to the united states or just solely contained within like our borders like this is something that like unfortunately occurs around the
3: world no i mean if you even go with longer historical ties like some of these organizations can go all the way back to the Ku Klux Klan and like lynching blacks in the South during, uh, well, for forever, basically. Yeah, it's, it's not great. No,
1: absolutely. Um, <clears throat> both of you made some very good points in that I think at face value, it's the problem of terrorism. And we have a model of how to deal with terrorism in the conventional sense of what we might think as uh, Islamic extremism. But, I, I mean, if we can be frank here, it's the same exact problem from what <clears throat> both Jamie and Adam have described. Same exact sort of behavior. And I think what we're having trouble to do, uh, trying to wrap our heads around this problem, is that how do we deal with people who are American citizens without uh, <clears throat> violating their rights?
2: Sure. Yeah, it's really tricky, and unfortunately, like, this is going to take a while. Luckily, it's on their priority list, but yeah, Lee's totally right. There's, this is going to take a while to kind of really, what are the guidelines? Like, how do you prosecute somebody that carries out an attack, or how do you prepare for it? Because it is so hard when you are, these people are citizens, so you don't want to be overstepping any of their rights, which is really difficult to do, and that's a really fine line, so.
0: Which is a interesting point, especially with Jamie's working group coming up to, when she has more information about it to really see how what the U.S. can do and how other countries define this and compare and contrast moving forward.
3: Yeah, I guess yeah, we can highlight the uh, the Ridgeway Center uh, working with the FBI office on this. There you go. Good job, Jamie.
2: Thank you, yeah. thank you. Yeah, we're looking at policy, so ours is a policy focus heavy, um, kind of looking at hate crimes and domestic terrorism. So I will get back to you all. We're gonna have a yes. lot of good information actually coming episodes. up in a couple future episodes in a couple months. So,
0: so now it is time in our show to introduce our guest, Dr. Michael Kenny. He was recently promoted to full professor here at GISPIA. He is also the program director of international affairs. Dr. Kenny teaches courses in the area such as terrorism and counterterrorism. Islamist militancy, international relations, and social network analysts. You might know him from his recent publication of the book, The Islamic State in Britain, which recently won the 2019 Best Book Award from the American Political Science Association's Political Network section. Thank you for being here, Dr. Kenny.
4: Thank you, thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) You're
0: welcome. So I hear you have some exciting news to share with us this morning. So congrats on the publication of your paper with the Commission for Countering Extremism. Can you tell us more about this paper?
4: Absolutely, so this paper is essentially a 20-page version of the book. Um, It's also an updating of the book because I include a number of um, things in the paper that came out, that developed after the book was first published in October of 2018. So for example, after last October, it started to um, emerge publicly that the group was making a comeback of sorts. So I talk about some of those issues in the paper. And then finally, the paper looks a little harder at the policy implications of of the research and and what this means for the British government's attempts to stop this outlawed activist network, but also the larger societal approach, because it's not just about the state. Sometimes local communities and former activists have important roles to play as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you for letting us know. And then we're going to go ahead and dive into the questions. So the first one is, Um, Let's discuss your conclusion on the process of radicalization and the result of de-radicalizing.
4: Okay, so um, the paper basically argues that both radicalization and de-radicalization are processes experienced by individuals in unique ways. Um, People come to a group like Al-Muhajirun through a variety of ways, sometimes they have a friend that kind of pulls them in. Sometimes they come across activists at the Dawah stall, um, and that's their first exposure to the group. Um, more rarely, they would marry into to the group. Um, sometimes people were introduced to the group um, through prison. Um, oftentimes. First exposure would have taken place online through the internet because the group used to be very active in um, publishing their their lectures uh, and other activities on different websites. Um, Similarly, leaving al-Muhajirun is also a process. Basically what happens with this group is young people come in uh, typically as teenagers, mid to late teenagers, they participate enthusiastically for several years, they eventually tire of it, um, they kind of grow out of it a little bit, and they, they move on to their lives. So turnover uh, has always been quite high in this group. Um, your, your typical person will come in, participate for a few years, and then gradually move on significantly without escalating to violence. Unfortunately, you also have the flip side of the coin where over the years a number of activists and former supporters have escalated to violence and they've participated in terrorist plots and attacks both within Britain and outside of Britain outside of Britain. And then more recently, after actually before the Kilafa was declared, but it picked up afterwards, a number of former activists, uh, made hijra, or immigrated, to join the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Um, most of them were actually killed over there. Uh, at least one person in my sample that I know of returned to Britain. But most people in my sample that went over to Iraq and Syria to fight for ISIS um, died doing so, or their whereabouts are no longer known. Thank you.
0: and <laughs> Can you tell us more about your community-level engagement proposal?
4: The last part of the paper looks at, um, you know, what can we do uh, to try and contain this group? And I start by discussing the government response. The government response in Britain uh, and other Western democracies, I should add, is typical in the sense that um, they want to come up with new laws new laws to try and stop this problem. And you kind of see that as part of the impetus behind this larger push towards extremism, this larger conversation that they're having in Britain right now. And this commission is deeply involved in that conversation. And what I've seen in my research over the years is that every time the government cracks down on al-Mahajroun and comes up with new laws to try and combat it, it has an impact on the group. Um, but it never succeeds in destroying the group. And so what I'm arguing in the paper is that the British government needs to recognize that they might have reached the limits of its more kinetic approach in terms of coming up with new laws to just eliminate networks. I think we need to see a stronger push for local community engagement as well as more emphasis on the positive role that could be played by former activists. Um, I interviewed a number of people. A minute ago I was talking about the turnover in this group and so one implication of that high level of turnover. There's a lot of people walking around in Britain who used to be involved in it, have kind of moved on with their lives. I interviewed a number of them. They're part of the sample. And drawing on those interviews and the experiences that I had and interacting with those people came up with this idea that we need to involve them Mm -hmm. more in counter-narratives. There's been a lot of work in Britain on what we used to call here CBE or countering violent extremism. Over there, they call it prevent, among other things. These terms have become really politicized in both countries. They raise the temperature. People get upset um, talking about them because there's a lot of different factors that go in. But In the paper, what I'm arguing is Britain has this resource former activists who were involved in the group who left and have not radicalized into violence we need to draw on those people because they are the experts on this group they can help the young kids that are gravitating towards groups like al-muhajirun they can help them understand what it's like to go through that and what it's like to emerge from it because they lived it you know they did it they know the narrative they know the experience and they can speak to the problems that they had when they were activists. Let me just give you one example. Being involved in a group like Al-Mohar is an all-consuming experience. It takes over your life. You dedicate your life to the goal of establishing the Khilafah or the Islamic State. It takes all your time. They want some of your money. Um, it's really draining and former activists understand this again they lived it and they can speak to that To the youngsters that are kind of haven't necessarily signed on all the way But they're moving in that direction Can say, you know, I was I was there I did it and let me tell you, you know um, Yeah, the, the narrative is is pretty um, persuasive in some respects, but what I saw for myself when I was involved, you know, was constantly doing different events. I didn't have time to pursue my own education. So these young kids that get involved, they they will oftentimes have to sacrifice their education for their activism. That's a very real cost that that people need to understand. And the former activists can help young people understand that.
0: And then moving on to our third question, is there a greater radicalization threat online or in-person networks? And I know you've touched on that in previous
4: questions, but. Sure. Well, one of the findings from from the book on which the paper is based is um, that actually sometimes we make too much of online radicalization. Um, I know it's been an important part of the ISIS phenomenon, and there certainly are many young people that um, have been influenced by the ideology and, and the information they got online so the internet has proven to be very useful as this vast repository of knowledge that people can tap can tap into but the process of coming to accept what on the face of it are some pretty extreme pretty radical ideas and they're radical in the sense that if these group ideas were enacted in British society, it would be revolutionary. It basically mean the overthrow of the current liberal democratic order and its replacement with a the theocratic state based on a very narrow interpretation of Sharia. They're very revolutionary. Okay? To some, for many people to internalize those ideas, it's not just about reading a few things on the internet. It's not just about um, exchanging a few texts with someone. It's often about engaging in face-to-face discussions with people. And because that's when you can get into this this back and forth, this give and take. What about this? What about that? And that's what I saw in my research, was that many of these young men, and they were primarily young men, although there were women involved as well, many young men gradually became in this involved in the group through this this process of meeting and having face-to-face discussions. So what I try to do in the book is say, yes, online radicalization is important in certain contexts, but for a group like Al-Muhajroon, offline radicalization is just as, if not more important, for many young people that, that become involved. Thank you.
0: And then... Does the way that media covers these groups contribute to the radicalization process? And if so, how does one
4: address that? Well, the way the British media, to be fair, it's not just the British media. The Western media has covered this group over the years, has certainly been counterproductive. I'll say that. Um, They built the group up. The group was never that big, okay? Even in its heyday, we're talking about couple couple hundred people, a couple hundred members, and then a larger number of supporters. But the way they were often portrayed in the media was this huge movement that was kind of in the process of subverting the country and was gonna eventually overtake the country, making it out into this huge thing. Or some media reports will characterize leading activists like Anjan Chaudhry as representative of larger Muslim communities. Both such portrayals were false. Okay. Al-Muhajirun was always quite small and marginalized. And second, people like Anjan Chowdhury never represented larger Muslim communities in the United Kingdom. And unfortunately, a lot of the media reporting, the way the media works in Britain with the red tops and the sensationalism, a lot of that reporting contributed to this idea that the group was you know, on the verge of doing some serious damage to Britain it just was was never the case I, I'm not saying the group didn't represent a security threat to Britain it did and I can speak to that but um the way the group was portrayed in the media um was was always a little off and counterproductive
0: and then moving forward what are some of your greatest concerns regarding the Islamic jihadi movement
4: well I mean I think um you Know the, the big question now is what's going to happen with the larger movement in a post caliphate, post territorial caliphate period, right? Um, you still have a lot of people out there that are committed to the ideology. You know, the Salafi jihadi ideology has proven to be quite resilient, so even as they lost the physical territory, there are still many committed believers out there. So um, what do we do about those people? You know, What do we do about the people who still subscribe to, to the ideology, um, that that is a challenge, while also recognizing that holding a set of radical ideas, even internalizing a set of radical beliefs, is not the same thing. As acting on those beliefs and actually mobilizing to political violence or terrorism. That there is a difference between radicalization and terrorism. And so if we are gonna to try and deal with this, we need to be able to make those distinctions and make them front and center.
0: Thank you. And then the last question we have for Dr. Kenny is: what lessons can policymakers pull from
4: your writings? Well. Um, one lesson that I hope that, that people can pull from it is that um, Al-Muhajirun has been um, portrayed in a certain way for, for many years. They've been demonized, they've been sensationalized. So one lesson that I hope we can pull from this research is moving beyond the demonization, moving beyond the sensationalism to, to really try honestly and accurately understand this group and what it was trying to do. I think that's the first step. And then beyond that, I think some of the things I talk about in the latter part of the paper, you know, um, involving local communities and increasing the role of former activists. Um, I think those are things that I would really love um, policymakers to take a closer look at. Sometimes less Is more. And what I mean by that, sometimes just creating a new set of laws uh, isn't necessarily the answer. You know, the British government has a lot of resources already at its disposal. Um, If it can tap into those resources better, then I think that will help.
0: Awesome. So that wraps up with our discussions. We all want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. We appreciate your time and being willing to do so. So Anyone else? Any other remarks or questions?
2: I have two. They're both probably hopefully really simple. Um, So then, are you hoping to involve the activists? Are you hoping then that that will decline the involvement with like younger people, or do you think it could potentially be if you start using activists? Are they going to encourage younger people? Is that is your hope that involving activists with local governments and using them as a resource to kind of cut down on the influence? that this group has on, especially like the younger population in Britain?
4: I think that's a great question. So we have to distinguish activists from former activists. Okay. Right. So the activists, in my mind, are the people that are still involved, Mm -hmm. right? The people that are still doing the Dawa stalls or the street preaching, doing the protests, although they've kind of moved away from that but they are very much committed to the ideology mm-hmm. and they share the same goal, which is to create the Islamic State in Britain. They've always been pretty upfront that okay. that is their goal. I don't think those people should necessarily <laughs> be involved in, in the sort of effort that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm talking about former activists, people that were involved with the group and that through their own journeys later moved away, and they didn't just move away. Disengagement isn't enough because you have people in Britain that have disengaged from the group but still subscribe to the ideology. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't necessarily want those people involved either because that, I think, gets to your concern that you're raising. Really, um, I'm talking about people that have not only disengaged but have de-radicalized. They've given up on the old ideas. And there are a number of these people in Britain who have de-radicalized to such an extent they've completely moved on. I mean, they actually work in local prevent councils uh, in this area. And, And frankly, they're some of the best people working in this space in the United Kingdom. So what I'm saying is it's those people we need to to, um, that's the resource, gotcha. that's the key local resource, mm-hmm. those people.
2: So are there any, reper- you kind of touched on the disengaging in your paper, so are there, from the people you interviewed, are there any serious consequences that kind of come from moving on from the group? I know that in more radicalized groups, as you've seen with like ISIS, if you try to leave the group, that they're, like your life is kind of on the line. This doesn't seem like that's kind of the case for this group, but are there any type of serious repercussions from leaving?
4: Sometimes what happens is that the group would put people under psychological pressure to try to get them from leaving. So Mm -hmm. if they know that you're moving towards leaving, you're moving towards exit, or they know you're on the fence, and you're seriously questioning some of these ideas, they would say, hey, come on, what are you doing? You've been given this obligation, it's incumbent upon you, Mm -hmm. you can't stop now, you're gonna burn in the hellfire might call them up, you know, try to put pressure on them. But I never heard of a single case of anybody being like physically threatened or physically hurt in any way for leaving the group. Right. Keep in mind the turnover has always been high. Mm-hmm. They're used to people coming and going all the time. People just they come in, they go to a few Dawa stalls, they go to a few meetings, then you don't see them, right? Sometimes those people might come back. Sometimes they don't. It's very fluid. So I never saw anything in my research, like you might expect when you think about these, this type of group. Um, but I never saw anything to suggest that anybody was physically harmed or, or threatened. I think the most extreme case was there was a guy who left, who claimed that the group married his sister to a long-standing activist, and that caused long-term problems for he and his family. Okay. That was the most extreme <clears throat> thing I heard, but awesome. ne- never anything physical.
2: Cool. Awesome, thank
0: you. Yeah, exactly.
4: yeah, Dr. Kenny, one thing that you said that really <clears throat>
1: struck me is the role that the media plays in building up these groups is that you kind of touched on that they overstated the threat that al uh plays in presenting, like, a national security threat to Britain. I'm curious to know, do you see any parallels with the U.S. media in the way they might cover terrorism?
4: Sure. I mean, that, that is a, um, a common dynamic with media reporting when it comes to things like violent extremism and terrorism. Um, it's just so easy to exaggerate the threat. And I think it sometimes happens unintentionally, you know, because a a real world attack will happen and it's a terrorist attack. You know, it's it's an act of political violence that is designed to freak us out. That's the whole point, right? And the media has a role to play in reporting what happened in that attack. Um, But through that process, it's just very natural for exaggeration and hyperbole to come into play. People are understandably upset. And so the potential for exaggeration is, is always there. And where you have to, have to, part of being a resilient society is being able to check ourselves. Being able to say, you know, yes, that was an awful attack. People were hurt that, you know, that's terrible. I do not support that. But let's put it in perspective, you know, what happened there, what was going on, what can research help us understand in order to prevent the kind of overreaction that, as you say, it it helps the terrorists at the end of the day. It helps the terrorists. It helps the violent extremists because it makes them into something bigger than they are. And they want that, by the way. They definitely want that. I had many, a number of al activists tell me th- they liked the media reporting because I would ask them, don't you get tired of getting demonized in the media? They were full, fully aware of what was happening. They liked it. You know why? Because they knew that the young kids were reading these media reports and then they would go up to them on the Dawa stall, on the street preaching stalls and say. And then they, the young kids would verify for themselves, and they would see on the Dalva stall that they weren't fire-breathing fanatics. They would see that there's a logic to what they're doing, and that's how they would pull people in. So at the end of the day, it gave the group the publicity that they wanted. It gave them the publicity that they needed to make them into something bigger than they ever were.
3: So this group has been around for a long time, and I'm really interested in how the rise and then the eventual fall of the physical caliphate in Iraq and Syria affected the the narrative and the ideology of this group. Like, did it have a big impact on how they presented themselves, like how extreme they their ideology was? The declaration
4: of the caliphate in June of 2014 gave the group a shot in the arm because they had been calling for the caliphate for almost 20 years at that point, for about 18 years. So they saw it as a blessing, so to speak. It was a validation of their mission. And a number of activists decided to accept the call and and go join and try to help build the the caliphate. They felt like, you know, we've been trying to do this in Britain. It's not going so well. I'm going to go overseas and do it. then, uh, after you know the West and a number of, of Middle Eastern countries kind of cracked down and, and through through the alliance and, and the war against ISIS, um, that all crumbled and I was able to interview people after that all happened, and I was asking them so when I say people, I mean people um, activists that are still involved in the network formerly known as Al Muhajurun. And I would ask them, you know, has this shaken your faith at all in, in the ideas? And they would always insist, no, no. I mean, the, the ideas are the same, the, the ideology is the same. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen sooner or later. And another thing that's important to remember about this group is it's one thing to try and create the conditions for the kilatha in the here and now, and, but that's not the ultimate reward. The ultimate reward comes on your own day of judgment when you stand before your maker and he's going over the list of what you did in your lifetime. And if you can show God or Allah that you did what you could to create the Islamic State, you're going to get credit for that and you will achieve the ultimate reward. Uh, everlasting life in paradise so that's the ultimate reward um, that they're gunning for whether or not the Islamic State um, still exists as a territorial entity they're still going to get that other reward when they face their maker on the day of judgment that's how they see it
0: so so that wraps wraps up our interview today with Dr. Kenny thank you to Dr. Kenny for being here and our panelists Adam Jamie and Lee And we look forward to having you here next time with us for the next episode.